This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is A.M. Holmes, author of the women's prize-winning novel, May We Be Forgiven, the best-selling memoir, The Mistress's Daughter, and 10 other books, including her latest short story collection, Days of Awe. Holmes frequently collaborates with artists and is a contributing editor to Vanity Fair, as well as writes for film and television. Days of Awe includes 12 stories, which look at topics such as failing marriages, our secret histories, and inclinations to find ourselves in sometimes very absurd and humorous ways. We began the interview with Holmes discussing how the issues she is thinking about in her life turn up in her fiction. Certainly with a novel, I think I always have what I describe as a nonfiction, almost like problem or thing that is bothering me. So something about the relationship between brothers would be an example in the last novel, May Would Be Forgiven, or that sense of um, kind of competition and anger within families, which was a, you know part of that book. Um, in some of the short stories, I'm looking at things about the way memory and history and loss sort of work on somebody over multiple generations. I'm doing a lot of things lately that are weaving pieces of um, sort of, you know, history, fact, as it used to be called, um, together with fiction, sort of along the lines, a little bit of what, what writers who I love, like Don DeLillo and others have done. And I find that a lot of fun to work with. But it just, it varies you know, from piece to piece, really, what the what the intention or what the what I bring to it, you know, when I start. Obviously, there's there's a lot of currents that will go through uh, a story collection that maybe are even in in your unconscious, and mm-hmm. you know, through days of awe, there's a lot of really interesting conversations between people where you almost feel like there's a third entity in the room, and I can talk about that sure. more. Yeah. Um, people's sexuality, people's mm-hmm. uh, sort of place. It, in the family or in their relationship. And also, um, I noticed that there were sort of recurring thoughts or, or images or references mm-hmm. to blindness, whether it's figurative or literal. Well, you know, it's, it's funny that you said that I would never, in that way of my subconscious, I would never have really thought of blindness. There are other things that come to mind very much as recurrent things. Um, and blindness isn't one of them, except that the other day I did have the strangest dream that somehow I had literally glued my eyes shut um, and I couldn't open them. And I spent the whole dream trying to sort of get this glue off my eyes and trying to tell people, hey, I can't open my eyes. So I think that there is a kind of, there's that piece of it. And I do think there's a kind of um, emotional, if not blindness, you know, what other people might call denial that does interest me a lot. That's about what people kind of refuse to see or what people know, but then spend a lot of energy kind of demonstrating that they don't want to know what they already know, if that makes any sense in some ways. As a kid, were you a keen observer? Did you have any experience where you were apart from the rest of the world? Like, were you sick or was there something that added to that? I love I love that you think that it's, it comes out of sickness. Um I know, and it's funny, you read, you know, it's, I was reading the other day about, who was it, who, oh, I know what I was reading. Isaac Mizrahi has written a memoir that's coming out next year, and I was reading it, and in the memoir, he talks about having gotten meningitis at one point, and being sick, and that sense of separateness, often, that children who are sick talk about. Um, I wasn't sick, 
but I grew up in a home where I was adopted. So I was very much other than the other people in my home. And a child had died who had lived to be nine, had died of an illness uh, that was a long time happening, six months before I was born. So there was this sort of overlay of grief in the house. And that's definitely very much a part of my sensibility. Did your parents in any way say to you, you know what, hey, we're, we're sorry that there was so much grief in our home? No, <laughs> you know, no, I don't. I think they, they never, they never said that. And I think if you ask them, and my father's dead now, my mother's still alive. They would certainly feel that and say, well, we, you know, we didn't mean to ever hurt you. And it was, you know, all of these different things. I think it, in that way that it was just both part of the family and then the dynamics of families are so complicated and sort of bred into the family and repeated over the years that it gets complicated, which is also what fascinates me. So I would say, you know, I'm, I'm also so incredibly grateful to have had my family and the family that I grew up in because I grew up in a family that loved books and loved stories and they were writers and there was art and there were plays to go to and there's no way I would be who I was and without them. Um, so as complicated as it all is, I think, you know, we all get some version of the family and have to make of it what we will. Uh, and that's, as you get to be an adult, that becomes your other job is, you know, if not making peace with your family, then, you know, making what you can out of it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is A.M. Holmes, author of 12 books, including her most recent short story collection, Days of Awe. One of the things that really fascinates me is epigenetic trauma. Mm-hmm. My favorite subject. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the things that we pass down and, and especially epigenetically because it could just be like in our genes and not on on a more verbal level. But that's Absolutely. something um, that you I think you really explored in the story <laughs> about the genocide conference. Uh, yeah, that is the sure. title story. It's called Days of Awe, uh, which also relates to a Jewish holiday. And basically, we have a war correspondent and a fiction writer who meet up at this at this genocide conference, who've known each other in their past. And she loves women, and he is divorced. And they they sort of get together, but all this other stuff is going on with the topic of genocide and trauma. Mm -hmm. That story in particular, Days of Awe, is very interesting to me because it took me probably 10 years to write. So I knew that I wanted to write a story about these two people, this who's described as a transgressive novelist, which could easily be mistaken for me. Um, which is part of the play of the story. And this war correspondent, who's a guy who she knew when they were much younger, who, you know, meet up and kind of hook up at this conference on genocides. And part of it was, I was interested in what people bring with them, not just from place to place, but, but historically what they carry with them and why both this novelist was compelled to write a novel about the Holocaust, which raises the questions at the conference about is Holocaust fiction legitimate? Uh, is there such a thing as Holocaust fiction? The anger that some survivors of Holocaust feel towards those who are, write their stories not having lived with them, which also puts it, and we can talk about it after, in sort of a big parens, the larger question that's very much on the table these days of 
whose story is being told and, and do we have the authority to tell stories that are not the ones that we've lived, which for me as a fiction writer is very interesting, very complicated. But anyway, going back to the Holocaust story, I wanted to look at both what these two characters were feeling that they were missing in their lives. So there's that element of it and they go back and they're sort of talking to each other in a kind of, I would call it pigeon Yiddish, <laughs> you know, a, um, a play on the, the language that they heard their grandparents speak and they may have heard fragments of around their house. And they're drawn together and part of it too is the questions about why do they need to live in the pain of others. Uh, so that interests me and then I'm very interested and it comes out in two of the other stories. It comes out in a story called Whose Story Is It and Why Is It Always on Her Mind? And in another story called The National Cage Bird Show that does talk about that cellular trauma and something that's taken scientists and psychologists years to realize, which is that for people whose relatives have suffered trauma, they have a, a biological adaptation to that, whether that's higher levels of certain you know, chemicals and, and reactive kind of things in their system and so on. So all that to say, I'm fascinated by that whole area of thinking and understanding of how we evolve sort of psychologically and physically. So in this story with the days yeah. of awe that this, this, these two friends that meet up and are both presenters. And so they're, they're lauded or in some cases very criticized with mm -hmm. talking about how do you fictionalize the Holocaust or whose story is this to tell? And then it, it, it's, there's also an absurdity to it. Like they get candy bars from pharmaceutical companies that um, have signs like sometimes getting happy should be simple. And right. these two have this funny dialogue where they almost act as if they're husband and wife and speaking Yiddish to each other and pretending that they have this whole other, other life. So how do you, when you're thinking about it, and maybe it is more unconscious, how do you find this balance between talking about these serious subjects and making it sort of, um, on some levels, irreverent or silly or absurd? Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good question, and it's, it's definitely something that's a piece of my work and at play, and not just in these stories, but in other things I've done. I think that by making something sometimes irreverent or slightly satirical or funny and causing somebody to laugh is a way of breaking the surface tension. And so if we can break that surface tension in a way, it lets us also talk more seriously about things that are pretty uncomfortable to talk about. So for me, there's a piece of that happening um, in that story. And it's been interesting to see how people respond to it, because I think people are relieved to laugh about something that's really not funny, that's really awful. And it's not just about the you know World War II Holocaust of the Jews, but the fact that historically, human beings keep killing other human beings, um, and and we don't seem to evolve uh, in our ability to accept each other's differences enough to stop killing each other, and so that worries me. But I think that one of the ways to make us more conscious about it and to think about it and talk about it is also by being a little bit irreverent and making us laugh. I will add that in order to sort of use that title and to call the book that, I went and asked several rabbis. I thought I need I need a, a you know a non authoritative opinion here because I really thought I don't want to offend anybody. That's not why I'm writing this. Um, and two two rabbis read it and said, 
you know, that's good. You can use the story. And it's, they go, but it has a lot of sex in it. And I said, oh, I know, I know, I'm sorry. They said, no, 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 it's good. You should have sex on the Sabbath. And I thought, TMI from a rabbi. And I'm like, I don't want to know. Um, but it was pretty funny, I mean, in that sense. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is A.M. Holmes, author of 12 books, including her most recent short story collection, Days of Awe. How much did our current political landscape feed into this or other stories? Well, the interesting thing is that um, the stories, for the most part, came before the current political landscape. Um, and oddly, there's a story called A Prize for Every Player, which is about a family that goes and does their Sunday shopping in a big box store, um, sort of like a Walmart or something like that. And as they're doing their shopping, the father goes off on a riff and is talking about his memories of America and what America was supposed to be. And he's ultimately nominated by the other shoppers in the store to run for president. And that's a story I wrote probably seven years ago, eight years ago. A lot of the stories I write for artists, for catalogs and books they're doing. And that was for the photographer Bill Owens, who you may know from his um, very well-known body of work called Suburbia, which was a series of black and white photographs of California in the 1970s. Um, and I was thinking when I was writing that a lot about how my sense was and is that a lot of people in America feel that the American political system has lost touch with them and has lost touch with who they are and what they want and what they need. Uh, and the story was a little bit of a conversation with that. And then sure enough, um, you know, we had this very odd and unusual election cycle. And now we're living in a, I would say, a very complicated time that's been more divisive than not. You mentioned that you write these stories for artists. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So many years ago, when I was a young person, I went first to art school. So I started painting and studying painting. And my father was a painter. Um, and I grew up in Washington, D.C. And it was just what we did on the weekends was, you know, you went with your dad to the museums and looked at art, whether you liked it or not. Um, and so I got this sort of inadvertent art education. And then I went on later to study art history, not having really even known there was such a thing that you could study. And it turned out I loved it. In part, it, it was what got me excited about history itself and the, the idea that you could see the world or understand the world through paintings and through pictures and photographs and so on, which is interesting to me because the same can be said for fiction, that you can understand the world and the times very much in the fiction of any particular period. But I, I you know, went to graduate school and I studied more and then I started working as an art critic. So I would write for Art Forum and other sort of, you know, the kind of serious art magazines in New York. And I realized at a certain point that sometimes the only documentation of an exhibit was the piece of criticism. And then I kept thinking, well, what is the function of this criticism? And, and does it need to reflect something about what we understand the artist's intention to be? And at the same time, my own career as a novelist was, was coming along quite nicely and so I also started doing a lot of interviews with artists about why they made what they made and what it meant to them and what they fed on to make it. Because I'm fascinated really by creative process. And I will say you could be an astrophysicist and I would be fascinated by how that works because I love to hear what compels people and why and what they look at to, to you know, feed those ideas. Anyway, so I started doing these kind of hybrid pieces where I would talk to the artist about what they make. Um, and all those influences. And then I would also sort of bring to it my own sense of 
their work and their life. And usually I did them for uh, books or sometimes museum catalogs, but often with well-established artists, they were happy to have something that made their project kind of more of an object and less sort of a, an academic thing of like, oh, here's another essay, you know, on this artist's work. So it's been enormously good fun. Um, and it's nice because the artists are happy with the stories and it's been really nice that, you know, they end up coming out first in magazines. And now many of the ones in this book were written originally for these artists. You have a lot of therapist-patient relationships either right. mentioned overtly. What is your interest in that? And it seems like the lines blurring is interesting to you. I would say on a on an actual real-life level, I, I'm not one for blurring the lines of things like that. Um, I think it's really important to have those boundaries. I think in the nature of the stories, it's interesting. One of the other stories, whose story is it and why is it always on her mind, also has a therapist's couch in it and a therapist in it. And that story was written for an English artist named Sarah Jones, who the three bodies of work that I was sort of trying to represent were one body where she photographed English roses and another body where she photographed young girls often hiding under or around furniture. And then a series she did where she went to New York and photographed analysts' couches. So just the couch, nothing else about the office, no identification. And I found all of that really interesting. And so that's, the, the for me, the fun and the magic of how do you spin that into a story. Uh, in Be Mine... I thought it was an interesting play because I think, you know, we also have these ideas about therapists as being not, you know, not flawed and not having personal lives. And there are lots of references. You're right. I hadn't even thought about it until now. But even in Days of Awe, there's a therapist and the main character says she's glad that she doesn't have feelings for this therapist because she kind of thinks the therapist is sort of a passive aggressive bully. Um, so I think I'm playing with those things. Um I certainly myself have an intimate relationship to therapy. As I like to say, I've been in therapy since fourth grade. I'm making very good progress. Um, I, you know, I hope to be uh, <laughs> self-sufficient. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I, I, I like it. I like that process of talking about what's going on in my mind and the relationship of my mind and my sort of thought process to the rest of my life, to my body, to my my own history, to my family, all of those things. I mean, it's for me, it's funny to say that I would say that's where I get a lot of material is in the thinking about all that and talking about all that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is A.M. Holmes, author of 12 books, including her most recent short story collection, Days of Awe. You start a lot of your stories in dialogue. Is that a technique that you just find works to get a reader into it? Or is that something that you're just curious and in, in exploring? That is a super good question. I would say for me, one of the things is that my sort of study of storytelling and my study of character comes really from the theater. So it comes from having grown up uh, you know, seeing and reading Arthur Miller's plays and reading Harold Pinter, who I loved, and Edward Albee, who later became, in the real world, world my mentor. And I actually started as a playwright. I wrote plays um, at first. And when I went to graduate school, I went both in fiction and in playwriting. So that way of using dialogue to both say the thing you want to say and then also something else simultaneously is very much a part of sort of the kind of work I'm doing. And, and I like hearing people's voices and trying to capture that. 
Because you like therapy and your stories are sometimes investigating questions you have about life and people and personalities, do you ever come out of writing your short stories or your novels answering some of the questions that you went in with? That's a good question. And I would say no, because I think for me, and I would literally call it the practice of writing. So the practice of writing a novel or the practice of writing stories for me is about exploring ideas and asking questions and really trying to create things that allow the reader to also explore questions and to kind of see themselves or see the world we're living in reflected back to them in a way that has a certain, if not refraction, meaning like almost like when the optometrist asks you, is what's better, lens one, lens two, and you think they're both terrible, you know, lens one, lens two. Um, and so it allows, the question is about how do we see ourselves and, and how do we see the world around us? And I think I'm not here to provide answers for that, but I am here to go on a journey with a reader and to ask the questions and hopefully to create work that's, I would say, both entertaining, but also pushes us to think a little bit. I want to be made to think. And I like when I'm writing, I'm being made to think. And I want to write things that prompt my audience to think as well uh, and to enjoy themselves in some ways. Is that what brings you to the page every day? I mean, it sounds like you have a lot of discipline, but what, what brings you to the page every day? Well, I love it. I mean, you know, I love, I love writing. I love characters. I love trying to understand what compels people. I love looking at the world around us and thinking, where are we? Where have we been? Where are we going? Who's going to come with me on this journey? You know, I, the, the, one of the wonderful, crazy things about being a fiction writer, is it's like having a 3D printer inside you. You know, I can, I can print people. I make people where there were none. Um, and they stay with me, these you know, various characters over time. And you'll see in, in this book there are two stories, one called Hello, Everybody, and the final story, She Got Away, that are about a character named Cheryl who first appeared almost 30 years ago in my first book of stories called Safety of Objects. And then she appeared in the second book, Things You Should Know, in a story called Raft and Water Floating. And it's interesting to me that when I first started, Cheryl was probably about 13 and it's been 28 or 29 years, and now Cheryl is probably a freshman or sophomore in college. So more time has passed in the real world than has passed in the fictional world as I've been, you know, exploring this character and her relationship to her family and to identity and to a sense of how does one achieve one's own sort of freedom or identity in the world. Uh, but it's the kind of thing I, I genuinely love. So it's it's... For me, the question is always of just getting enough time to write, not what am I going to write? You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is A.M. Holmes, author of 12 books, including her most recent short story collection, Days of Awe. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So the story I'm going to read to you a little bit of is a story by Grace Paley called Wants. And what I will tell you is that Grace Paley was my teacher at Sarah Lawrence College. And she taught me a lot about writing what she called the truth according to the character, which we can talk about a little bit after I read this. But this little section is the beginning of Grace Paley's story, Wants. I saw my ex-husband on the street. I was sitting on the steps of the new library. Hello, my life, I said. 
We had once been married for 27 years, so I felt justified. He said, what? What life? No life of mine. I said, okay. I don't argue when there's real disagreement. I got up and went into the library to see how much I owed them. The librarian said $32 even, and you've owed it for 18 years. I didn't deny anything, because I don't understand how time passes. I've had these books. I've often thought of them. The library is only two blocks away. My ex-husband followed me to the book's return desk. He interrupted the librarian, who had more to tell. In many ways, he said, as I look back, I attribute the dissolution of our marriage to the fact that you never invited the Bertrams to dinner. That's possible, I said. But really, if you remember, first my father was sick that Friday, then the children were born, then I had those Tuesday night meetings, and then the war began. Then we didn't seem to know much of anymore. We didn't know them. But you're right. I should have had them to dinner. And I'll stop there. But I can tell you the things that I love about the beginning of that story are the, the most simple, which is just that when she sees the ex-husband, she says, hello, my life. And then the way she says, we had once been married for 27 years, so I felt justified. And I love that use of had once been married. Um, and then the idea that he follows her into the library and he says, you know, our marriage fell apart because you didn't invite this couple over. And she says, well, I would have, but then we had children and then they got sick and then this happened and the war began. So by the end of it, we didn't have much in common. Um, and that to me is also fascinating in terms of looking at how Grace Paley condenses time and manages to capture really the 27 years of this marriage in a half a line. So I, I just love her work enormously. Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft? I'll read you a little bit of a story called A Real Doll. And this is a story I wrote when I was um, in graduate school at the University of Iowa. And I'll tell you in a minute why it was so tricky. Um, and I'll just give you the first little bit. A real doll. I'm dating Barbie. Three afternoons a week, while my sister is at dance class, I take Barbie away from Ken. I'm practicing for the future. At first, I sat in my sister's room watching Barbie, who lived with Ken on a doily on top of the dresser. I was looking at her, but not really looking. I was looking and all of a sudden realized she was staring at me. She was sitting next to Ken, his khaki-covered thigh absently rubbing her bare leg. He was rubbing her, but she was staring at me. Hi, she said. Hello, I said. I'm Barbie, she said, and Ken stopped rubbing her leg. I know. You're Jenny's brother. I nodded. My head was bobbing up and down like a puppet on a weight. I really like your sister. She's sweet, Barbie said. Such a good little girl. And especially lately, she makes herself so pretty and she started doing her nails. I wondered if Barbie noticed that Miss Wonderful bit her nails and that when she smiled, her front teeth were covered with little flecks of purple nail polish. I wondered if she knew that Jennifer colored in the chip chewed spots on her nails with purple magic marker and then sometimes sucked on her fingers so not only did she have purple flecks of polish on her teeth, but her tongue was the strangest shade of violet. So to me, this is a story that I wrote, I'd say fairly early in my career, but also it was a story where I really wanted to deal with Barbie as a social figure and a cultural icon and also a problematic toy for girls in the sense that when I was growing up, my mother said, you can't have a Barbie. She's inappropriate. You know, it's this 12-inch long sort of woman, male, female figure who has enormous breasts and all these things that were just not considered appropriate for kids. 
and so I wrote the story really trying to make sense of it and doing something which I ultimately have done a lot, which is picking a narrator who I would say in some ways is the least likely character to be telling the story. Uh, in this case, you know, a young boy uh, as opposed to, you know, the typical sort of person who plays with Barbie who's a, a young girl. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it was a story that went through many iterations and then various people wanted to publish it and were told they weren't allowed to because of the fear of being sued uh, by Mattel, Barbie's manufacturer. Where do you write? That's a good question. Where do I write? I write anywhere. I write everywhere. You know, I, I just am always desperate to get something done. I like to get up early in the morning. I'm definitely an early starter. I like to write in silence. I like to write a best-case scenario, away from home. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't think I ever try to get away from writing. I always try to get to writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a couple of friends who are good editors, I would say, and I show it to them. How have you dealt with rejection? How have I dealt with rejection? I think that rejection is complicated, and, and it the way one deals with it moves through one's life differently. So I'd say when I was a younger person and got rejected, I really just pushed through it. And I always tell my students not to be undone by it, that actually to take rejection or somebody turning you down in some way as kind of a call to arms and use that to motivate yourself. And I would say now that I'm older and the world we're living in is more complicated in different ways, and the questions of rejection and marketplace and all these things are very different, I would still try to say that. I would still say, use it as a motivating tool. Don't use it to shut yourself down. The other, to me, very interesting thing was something that Eleanor Coppola once said to me. So Eleanor Coppola is an artist who is Francis Ford Coppola's wife and Sophia Coppola's mom. And we were talking once about creativity and making art, And she said, sometimes when you're trying to do something, the door won't open. That door is closed to you. And she said, rather than just banging your head on that door again and again, trying to get through it, look for another way around and look for something else that you can do. And that to me has always been very true, that sometimes for whatever reason, and it could have nothing to do with one's work, it could have everything to do with your work, something doesn't happen. Something doesn't go the way you want it to go. And the question then is, how can you work literally around it sometimes and almost go in through a side entrance? Or how can you pivot and do something differently? And I thought that was incredibly good advice on her part. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word? Yep. Awe. (laughs) My favorite word is awe. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was A.M. Holmes, author of 12 books, including her most recent short story collection, Days of Awe. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.